0: The author, James A.K. Smith, wrote a book in which he describes the inherent religious nature of human beings. His point is that even those who claim to be atheists or, or who are staunchly secularist cannot hide the fact that they revert to practices and beliefs that are very religious in character. He gives an example I'd like to share with you. He paints the picture of say an alien coming from outer space and he's observing the world. He doesn't know anything about humans. He's trying to ascertain what what it is that drives them. He's unfamiliar with the ways of man. But he observes these earth creatures moving toward a large building, what we would call a shopping mall. And he interprets their shopping as a form of religious worship. The comparison is actually quite striking. He writes this, as a quote, the site is throbbing with pilgrims every day of the week as thousands and thousands make the pilgrim, pilgrimage. In order to provide a hospitable environment absorb the daily influx of the faithful, the site provides an ocean of parking. The monotony of black, uh, of black tarmac is covered by dots of color from cars and SUVs lined up row by row waiting patiently as the pilgrims devote themselves to the rituals inside. He goes, that's end quote. He goes on and he describes the sanctuary, that is the mall that they enter, the map laying out for the worshipers, the organization of the sanctuary so the people know where to go. They are, there are innumerable chapels in which to worship, uh, devoted to various saints. The worshippers enter and they look for the idols. We would call it stuff. They find these idols. And they bring it, uh, they find the idols that will bring them the greatest amount of happiness. They shop through, they pick the one that's going to really make them feel good. And then they bring it to the altar where the cashier or priest will receive their monetary offering and packages their idol for them. The priest offers a blessing and a benediction. Thank you. Come again. And the worshipers enter, uh, return home or they continue to shop in their larger sanctuary. Now, by seeing the analogy with a shopping mall, by the way, the same comparison could be made to a sports arena uh, where the same kind of worship liturgy takes place. We're reminded of the fact that people, all people, are worshipers. They demonstrate that in spite of their rejection of biblical Christianity, uh, they will act in ways that are very much similar to a worship service. But their rejection of God does not result in them believing nothing. It believes that they will believe anything and that, by mean, and that means they will necessarily resort to some kind of false religion. Now, why am, am I opening this sermon with this illustration? I believe this evening we'll be, we want to be reminded of two important truths. First of all, everyone is a worshiper by nature. If you're a human being, you're naturally a worshiper. And two, those who do not believe in God, and even those who do by virtue of their remaining flesh, will be drawn to false religious practices that which Paul calls the lie. We'll look at this specifically as presented in the book of Galatians, but then we'll look at it more broadly as we see it in the rest of Scripture. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing in our time together. Lord, we do thank you for the book of Galatians and Paul's writing of it. It's also a reminder of the reality of false religion, false beliefs, false worship, and how even as believers we can be prone to the same thing. I pray that tonight you would open our eyes to that, uh, to our own uh, situation, each one of us individually, to reflect on ourselves and to see those areas that need improvement, that need to be addressed, and to walk more closely and circumspectly with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I've come to really appreciate the book of Galatians more and more as I watch this culture. Paul's words are by no means directed to just some first-century cults or now-defunct religions. They are as applicable today as ever. The book of Galatians is a letter written by Paul to a group of churches among which false teachers have begun to promulgate false religion. He's writing to remind them of the truth of the gospel uh, through Old Testament passages, through references to other apostles, through their own experiences, uh, to what he has taught them and so on. Various ways in which he is bringing them back to the reality of the truth of the gospel and exposing the lie that's being promulgated in their church. He exposes that lie in the false teachers' Now, one of the important things to note here is that even though it was a false religion, what the false teachers were promoting was incredibly close to the real thing. A am meeting with the men on Tuesday mornings, you know, reading the book, uh, uh, Christianity and Liberalism by J. Gresham Machin, He points out this about the book of Galatians. He says, paul the difference between Paul and the false teachers concerns the logical order of three propositions or steps. This is what Paul said. Paul says, one, first, a man first believes in Christ. Second, he's justified by God. And third, he proceeds to keep the law. The Judaizers have the same three propositions, but they reverse the second two. The first one, that man believes in Christ. Second, that he keeps the law as best he can. And then third, he's justified. So here's a case where the beliefs are the same. They're just a different order. That's how close the false religion can be. It's subtlety, it shows how close the enemy can bring us to the truth without it being truth. And Machen's point is that the second one, what the Judaizers are teaching, is not just like an aberrant Christianity, it's a completely different religion entirely, in spite of all that it seems to have in common. And we need to hear this because this is not happening just in the halls of academia or large blue cities and progressive states, it's in churches right down the street. What appears to be Christianity is really stripped of the most important doctrines that make them not just poor churches, but churches that are actually not even Christian, what the Apostle John might call the synagogues of Satan. Let's focus in a little bit more on the passage for this evening. Uh, in this section of the book, Paul is describing of the book of Galatians, the, the letter of Galatians, Paul is describing two ways of life, the life lived in the flesh and the life lived in the spirit. This is a pattern throughout Scripture. Uh, We receive the two paths that are presented in scripture. We can go down the path of life, light, spirit, and truth, or the path of darkness, death, and lies. We're in the midst of what Paul writes out as uh, two lists of the kind of uh, fruit that is produced by the two paths. He says, you walk down this path, this is the kind of fruit that's going to be produced. You walk down this path. This is the kind of fruit that's going to be produced. Right now he's in the the fruit that's produced by a life that's lived in the flesh, apart from the spirit. Look again at verses 19 through 21. The works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in the time past, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we noticed last time, in the last sermon, that's not an uncommon practice uh, of theologians to look at this these list of sins, which is not comprehensive, uh, but it is indicative. It has examples of the different categories of sins that we find in scripture. For example, we see the sins of immorality. We saw that last time. That includes the adultery, fornication, uncleanness, and lewdness. We also see sins of false religion, Lord willing, that we are looking at tonight, idolatry and sorcery. The sins of violence, that's hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders. And then the social sins of drunkenness and revelries. These four types of sin. We'll actually see these in other passages as well. Well, As I said in our last sermon, we covered the sins of immorality. Tonight we want to look at the sins of the false religion, represented here by these two words, idolatry and sorcery. These these two words, uh, let's look at each one of them in detail, and then we'll expand our thinking and understanding about that. First, the word idolatry often refers to visible representation of God or gods and that practice was very common among the Gentiles at that time scripture actually uses the term in broader applications though than just crafted idols we don't want to think of this as merely a first century phenomena that has no bearing on the world today I'll get to that in just a moment let me show you why Paul doesn't restrict this to just some people bowing down to a block of wood look over at Romans 1 and we're going to see the process of how they get to where they are going in Romans 1.18, a favorite passage uh, in our church here, we refer to this often. It has so much packed into it. But we want to see this, this degradation that happens. Verse 18, we'll take it through twenty three or 24. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all in godliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress, suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. Professing to be wise, this is verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness uh, in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Here we see, again, not just the false religion, but immorality that we referred to before. So Paul showed us here that when people suppress the truth about God and they embrace the lie of the enemy, they inevitably redirect their worship away from the transcendent creator to the creation. Now, this does not necessarily translate to unbelievers bowing down to blocks of wood, though some do. But it means that they will look to the creation to do what only God can do for them. Only God can address the sin in their hearts only God can give meaning to life and satisfy the soul. Only God can reveal the world to come. Only God can define reality and explain relationships and the origin of life. But Paul shows here that they reject that. They reject that revelation. They reject who he is. And they become fools even while they're boasting of their wisdom. Paul uses a second word here including, uh, the, included in this false religion category. That's the word sorcery. The, word, the Greek word here is pharmakia. The word has gone through several iterations of meaning. But Paul is referring here to witchcraft or sorcery. It often refers to even the use of medicines, drugs, or spells. Uh, broadly speaking, it's an attempt to access the spiritual world through non-biblical means uh, for the purpose of asserting power over your circumstances or to manipulate reality to your own purposes and desires. These two words are used by Paul, idolatry and sorcery, should be understood not, again, as a full disclosure of the nature of false religions, but as two descriptors uh, evidenced by that that reveal to us a category uh, uh, to which Paul is pointing. It's a category in which sinners turn away from the living God to worship and manipulate creation to conform to their own criteria and wishes. It's false religion. It's false worship. And since Paul's introduced the subject, I wanted to stop, rather than just going through the list of sins, stop and reflect for one sermon on this issue of false religion. So we can identify, not just identify around, around us, but also even in ourselves at times, that we have an inclination through our, our remaining flesh to, to fall into some of these same practices and thoughts. <clears throat> now, set it up, I want to begin with a presupposition from Scripture that i found really helpful when it comes to apologetics and worldview thinking. This is a thought that was articulated first that I know of through Herman Dojevert, although I'm sure we could go all the way back in Calvin and, of course, in Scripture. But he argued that when you suppress the truth of God in the Bible, you are logically driven to replace him with something less than him. In this way, every worldview, every false religion, this is the presupposition, involves making, replacing God, with something in creation as absolute. So rather than an absolute God, we've rejected him. Something down here now becomes the absolute. The Christian apologist Nancy Piercy put it this way in her book, All philosophies, all philosophies, this is a really interesting presupposition, are born out of the tendency for each thinker to absolutize his own limited horizons of experience. This can be translated into theological terms as the human tendency to create mental idols. Those who reject the transcendent creator will build their worldview on something within creation. Once you reject the biblical revelation of the triune God, the personal absolute triune God, you're going to have to come down here and you're going to have to figure it out from here. I find this extremely helpful. Rather than just trying to compare worldviews, uh, looking at every, we instead look at every worldview as some kind of a reduction of Christianity. So you, every world you look at, and say, how has that reduced the truth? It reduces Christianity begins by reducing God's glory and His being. So, for example, naturalism denies God and it reduces all of reality to merely matter. You probably have heard the words, "The cosmos is all there is, or ever will be." Idealism is a reduction of reality to purely ideas in the mind. Progressivism and evolution reduce reality to a constant flux and change. It can't account for anything fixed. Islam reduces God by redefining him into an impersonal singularity or force. Hinduism reduces all of reality to an impersonal spirit. We can go on, but I hope you get the idea. To abandon the Bible and what God teaches about the world, himself... Truth, relationships, institutions, knowledge, ethics, purpose, and so on, is to step back into pagan thought, grounded in man's speculations and speculative projections of what they feel or hope. I say this, I, th- I have the, the teenagers in mind who are now, you know, as they move from here and into college and they're faced with all these ideas that get slammed. I, I hope this just stays in your brains that to abandon Christianity and go somewhere else is a step down. It's a reduction in the worldview. It's a reduction that leads to despair. What's common to all of them, as I said, is a degradation. It begins with the assertion of autonomy, the belief that you have the authority to define reality and ethics, the suppression of the revelation of God and nature in the Bible, and then embracing man-made speculations that are merely collections of self-refuting and self-contradicting propositions. Let's take a moment and remind ourselves that false religion is not something that is just a a thing of the past. This is something that's past, present, and future. One doesn't need to search long to see instances of false religion in the Old Testament. The history of God's covenant people begins with Abraham being called out of idolatry. We could even go before that. The history of Israel is one of constant battles with nations of false religions and compromises with them. Read of the false gods of Baal and Ashtoreth of the Canaanites. Uh, Chemosh, the national god of the Moabites and Ammonites. Dagon, the god of the Philistines. Marduk, the god of the Babylonians. Milcom, the national god of the Ammonites. Uh, It's it's throughout the scriptures. Recently, I've begun to do some preliminary work on my next sermon series, Lord willing, on Hosea. When we get there, I I keep uh, going slower in Galatians. I'm just liking it so much. Listen to what one, one commentator said about the nation of Israel. Quote, Israel had a history of infidelity to the covenant. She pursued her lovers by going after other gods repeatedly. She went so far as to hire lovers, an act that compares Israel's idolatry to an act of prostitution. Israel violated the terms of the covenant again and again. End quote. Idolatry then is prevalent in the Old Testament books, and this is why the nation went into, eventually went into, um, to the exile. Regarding sorcery, not just the idolatry, but regarding sorcery, we can merely turn to the warnings of Deuteronomy eighteen ten. There shall not be found among anyone, found among you, anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. That's child sacrifice. Today we call it abortion or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer. All of these are picturing a desire to access the spiritual world beyond us, to receive wisdom into one's circumstances, or to know the control of the future. Think of astrology, things like that. Such people are actually invoking evil spirits to take the place of God in the interpretation of their world. By the way, it's interesting to note that the first and last, is speaking of Old Testament and in the past, The first and last commandments both deal with false religions. God knows that resorting to false religion will always be the default of fallen men and remains a threat even to converted believers. As I said, the first and last commandments, because the first commandment says to have no other gods before him. And we'll see in a moment that covetousness is idolatry. I'll show you that now. Going to the present, that's the past. We see all all this false worship in the Old Testament. What about now? We might say, well, those are just unsophisticated pagan nations. They were ignorant, unscientific, not technologically advanced like we are. But let me show you two verses that brings us right into our houses. Colossians 3.5, Paul writes, Therefore, put to death your members which are on earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. That's why I said the Tenth Commandment is another picture of false religion. Paul makes a point again in Ephesians 5.5, For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Paul there is therefore equating covetousness with idolatry. And he does this because money and things can serve the same role as an idol. It's a physical object that one puts trust in to give him power over his circumstances. In this way, idolatry is similar to sorcery. Both are attempts to exert control or power over one's circumstances or their situation, apart from appealing to and trusting in the God of scriptures, who alone has providential authority over all that comes to pass. In the New Testament, we read in 1 Corinthians 10, a passage that Pastor Robbins likes to refer to often, where he describes the idolatry of the Hebrews uh, as an example for us today not to crave after things, whether it's wooden idols or the newest thing on Amazon. Idolatry is not just a 1st entry issue. In fact, our culture is now drowning in calls for things like equity and income redistribution. That's driven by covetousness. That is a covetous drive and an idol. It's idolatry. The Internet is a rabid promoter of covetousness and greed, with all the products available today, I would argue that idolatry is at a historic high. I read an article just this week in which the author stated, quote, it is crucial to understand, this is a Christian author, it's crucial to understand that the current culture wars are not between Christianity and secularism. There is nothing secular about the woke revolution. We are living through the great awakening Just as Christianity shaped the Anglosphere after the evangelical revivals, a new religion is now shaping the West. But this one is brutal, ancient paganism, not the religion of the Bible. That captures, I think, the theme of this sermon very well. People are innately worshipers, sinfully inclined to worship What about the future? We've seen the past that was all through the the Old Testament. We see it now, even in our culture. What about the future? Does that just sort of die out and, and disappear? Does it have a role in the future? Absolutely. One merely has to look at the book of Revelation where we read of the false prophet, the beast from the earth. The false prophet is a religious figure. He functions as a propagandist for the human empires and political powers described as the beast from the sea. He's a counterfeit holy spirit. False religion is not going away. It is currently organizing and growing in international institutions. We read also of Babylon in the book of Revelation. Babylon uh, representing the seductions of the world as a city form. We read in uh, Revelation 18.23, The light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore, and the voice of the bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorcery, all the nations were deceived, and in her was found the blood of the prophets and saints and of all who were slain on the earth. False religion has a future, and it's got a, uh, a dark one. What are the consequences of those who fall into the practice of false religion and false worship? The book of Psalms teaches us that those who worship false idols are destined to become like that which they worship. The psalmist describes it in Psalm 115, they have mouths, speaking of the idols. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. And then he says this. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. Those that worship false gods become spiritually Dull, lifeless, useless. Remember the words in Romans one: professing themselves to be wise, they become fools. This is one of the consequences. The second one, and we could look at others. The second one would be uh, the self-deception. I mentioned we the, the scripture reading this evening out of the Old Testament is out of Isaiah forty-four. I love that chapter; it is just marvelous. But he continues on after he's talked about making these idols. And he says this, the rest of the, in other words, he says he takes a block of wood, he cuts half of it away, throws it on the fire and warms himself. And then he says, and the rest of it he makes into a god, a carved image. He falls down before it, he worships it, he prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my god. <clears throat> he continues, they do not understand. For he has shut their eyes, it says God has shut their eyes so that they cannot see. Their hearts, they cannot, so that they can't understand. No one considers in his heart. Nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I've also baked bread on its coals. I've roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside. He cannot deliver his soul nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? How do we apply the text? I never want to assume that everyone who sits in the sanctuary here is a believer. If today you do not name the name of Christ, I plead with you to listen to the words of this sermon and the scripture. So often people think of the Bible as a a kind of warning. that says that if you worship false idols, God's going to punish you. But if you read Romans 1, we find that if you're worshiping false gods, it means the judgment has already begun. Worshiping false gods is not... It is an effect of the judgment. It's an effect of the judgment, not just a cause of it. Flee from the wrath of God while you can. Take hold of Christ who will save you from those things which cannot save you. He will save you to a future, a hope, and to an eternal fellowship with your creator, savior, and friend. What about believers? How does this apply to you? Remember the warnings of God to the Israelites before they went into exile. Jeremiah 2.13 God says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn uh, themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. I hope by now as we've gone through the book of Galatians and other books that we've preached, that you can see uh, how very subtly and almost imperceptibly our Christianity can degenerate into a kind of false religion or to treat God or worship as something less than what it is. Uh, It's in Genesis, we see Cain offers an unworthy sacrifice all the way to the book of Revelation where you have the the synagogues of Satan describing the churches that have fallen away, forgotten. For, For example, Ephesus says you've forgotten your first love and you've become this kind of church and I'm going to take the lampstand away from you. This is a real possibility and it happens. We're seeing it in our culture today. What does that degradation look like for the individual Christian? Let me give you four areas. God worship, prayer, and the Bible. When you begin to treat God as the pagan treat their gods, you're falling into false worship. They do not see God as a personal creator and a heavenly father. They see their gods as somewhat antagonistic and angry and needing to be appeased. Their worship is a kind of a spiritual manipulation to wrest out of the gods what they want, whether it's food, money, or fame. They do not see their gods as disposed to love them as the true God does. Our Lord tirelessly and endlessly seeks for our best. He calls us to fellowship with him and to give us joy in his presence. He promises to pour out blessings of the spirit like love, joy, peace, and more, which we'll look at in weeks to come. They, all all these find their source in him, the source of living water. But do you see this God this way? Is, is God a roadblock to your happiness, or is he a path to it? Are your prayers just lists of what you want for yourself, ease, comfort, financial stability, a perfect family? Do you fellowship with him, or do you just try to negotiate a deal? God, I'll come to church morning and evening this month if I could just get that car or that boyfriend or girlfriend or house, or you name your God, put your, put your God in that little blank. What about your worship, what does that look like? Is it just a boring repetition of the liturgy week after week? Do you merely sing the words of the hymns and mentally engage, or do you mentally engage with the psalmist or the hymn writer uh, and what they've composed, lifting the words of the Lord as if they're your own? Mindless worship, disengaged worship, ritualistic worship is false worship. It's not pleasing to the Lord, it's not beneficial to you. What about prayer? Is it a burden? Do you even do it? Is it dry? Is it boring? Is it a task? When I was, I think I've probably mentioned this before. I mean, you go you're in a church twenty years. You have got to repeat the illustrations at some point. I only had so many experiences, but I went to the, this place in uh, Nepal. It's the Monkey Temple, and I'm going up and I'm looking at this Monkey Temple, and there's a bunch of monkeys, which I guess was not a surprise. But they also had these rows of cylinders. And on the cylinders are images. And I asked somebody, what are these for? And they said, well, you just walk down the row and you spin them. And that image, which is a prayer, gets sent up. So you just like that, like that. You do all your prayers walking around. I guess you could listen to a podcast while you're doing it, and they would do it for you. Are your prayers like that? The Word. Another way we can slide into false religious practices is to minimize the word of God, to treat it as if it's a burden that you have to do to keep God's, you know, you have to read it to keep God happy. I'm going through a book, as I mentioned, on Christianity and Liberalism with the Men on Tuesday, and we're discussing how the church in the West has degraded. And as liberalism has crept into the church, we see the Bible not valued or adored. It's culled. It's criticized. It's evaluated, and people pick and choose out of what they want. The scripture describes itself as the words of life. It's the light into the path. It's the balm for the wounded, the revelation of, of a world beyond our own and the coming kingdom that will encompass all of reality. Is that the way you see it? Do you approach the word as 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 a treasure to be discovered? Or is it just a task? Those are four, perhaps, descriptions. Let me give you four Prescriptions. First, these are from the scriptures on the issue of idolatry and false religion. First, remember what God has saved you from and what he saved you to. Listen to the words of Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1. Paul describes the reputation of the Thessalonians as those who turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul's encouragement for the Thessalonians, after reminding them that God saved them from paganism and idolatry and false religion, false worship, his encouragement then is to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son's return. Second, first we remember what God saved us from, what he saved us to. Second, we're told to flee idolatry. I referred a moment ago to 1 Corinthians 10, where the Israelites, having left Egypt, now turned to craving for the things of Egypt. We might be falling into craving the things of this world. How does Paul tell us to deal with it? He reminds us that we're not slaves to idolatry. We don't, that doesn't have power over us anymore. He writes in 1 Corinthians 10, this is following that whole description of the Israelites falling into temptation, falling into that craving. He says, no temptation has overtaken you such as common to man. <clears throat> but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, my, my beloved, flee from idolatry. There it is right there. He says, they had all this craving, and he says, now, in light of that, you don't have to give in to that. Flee from it. Third, don't associate with those given to idolatry. So we remember what we're saved from and saved to. We flee idolatry. And now it says, don't associate with those who are given to idolatry. Paul encourages us to reflect on our friendships and associations. He writes in 1 Corinthians 5.11, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother, who is sexually immoral, there's our sexual immorality, or covetousness or covetous or an idolater, together, false religion, a reviler, there's your violence, by the way, or a drunkard, there's our drunkenness. You see all the same four there. He says not even to eat with such a person, but he says don't uh, keep company with a covetous person or an idolater. The Bible's clear that those who walk with the wise grow wise, but the companion of fools suffer harm. If your close friends, those who you're with all the time, the one you hang with, are those who are perpetually coveting or focused on worldly things, and they're drawing you into these kind of conversations, you need to choose other friends. If all they can do is do a horizontal conversation, they can never get vertical. I'm talking about Christian friends. He was saying a brother. your Christian friends. If all they can do is go horizontal, you might want to look around for another friend. Four, don't give up hope. When you look around you now and you see the degradation of the culture I mentioned earlier, what do you think? There goes my 401k. Inflation is ruining my savings. This is going to crimp our vacation options. Let me suggest there's actually great cause for hope as paganism and progressivism arise. Because paganism, as paganism arises, so does the hopelessness and despair that follow in it. This leads to a clear distinction, then, between paganism and Christianity. C.S. Lewis once remarked that perhaps the best antidote to folk Christianity, which we've seen here in the West, and to this kind of vapid, nominalist Christianity, he says, I think the best thing is rather than winning them to Christianity, we have to first win them to paganism. Let them see what paganism really looks like. Now you've got the antithesis. Now you've got the contrast. And you see the difference? Light, dark. Life, death. Truth, the lie. So I think there's a wonderful gospel opportunities coming before us. We're seeing it already. The loneliness, the despair, the anger, the angst in our culture. Great opportunities for us uh, if the Lord should uh, lead those uh, opportunities to us. So let me conclude with these words of the Apostle John, which I think kind of collects some of these ideas all together. John says this in 1 John 5. We know, think of yourself here, he's describing the Christians We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, I would pray for my brothers and sisters here. Lord, we see how easy it is through our flesh to begin to embrace the things of the world and to treat them as if they somehow can provide for us what only you can provide. And I pray that we will be warned by Paul tonight, uh, not just warned, but also encouraged as we are reminded of the greatness of our God and the greatness of uh, what it is to be in your family and to be called a Christian and a believer and a son of God. Lord, bless us with these truths, we pray this evening in Christ's name. Amen.